Gospel Revolution Seminar. That's a three-word title, Gospel Revolution. I didn't say revival. I didn't say renewal. I didn't say refreshing. I said revolution. That, that's on purpose. See, a, a renewal you ought to have every day. A refreshing you probably need several times a day. And a revival might come every so often when things get a little dead. But a revolution, you don't need that even in every generation because a revolution is something that goes right to the root of the tree and, and, and really radically alters our thinking. So when I say a gospel revolution, it's not because I was just uh, picking any word out of a basket, uh, so to speak, uh, but, but I mean we need a revolution. Because uh, the gospel has been forgotten. The rallying crying, many of our seminars, is bring back the gospel. I tell pastors, bishops, leaders, uh, we're going to train you in the gospel. And they look at me like, why? I'm a bishop. I'm a pastor. I already know the gospel. Well, I say, I'll let you judge. Let's, let's go through it. Uh, you see, sometimes I think we have minimized the gospel. Uh, we have made a, a lot of words like Christian and Christianity and revival, words that Jesus never even spoke, never said that. He never said anything about Christianity. But he did speak a lot about the gospel and the urgency of the gospel. It's like, you know, pastors... People, church people receive so much teaching about the anointing and about prayer and about end times and about leadership and such things. And, I, and they're all good topics. Uh, but in the middle of that, people say, well, well, the gospel. Everybody knows that. That's just the elementary. See, we have minimized it to make the gospel this little uh, small presentation is kind of, you can summarize it in a few words, but I say the gospel is the context of the whole. It's like a car. Let, let's say if we would liken different parts of the car to different aspects of the Christian life, we could say maybe that the motor is, is the baptism and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the spirit for life and, and the steering wheel would be something else and the tires would be something else. You know, all these things are needed, but, but it doesn't matter if you don't have the body of the car, if you don't have the chassis, it doesn't matter how good your tires are or it doesn't matter how good your engine even is, if you don't have the body of the car. And, and the body of this, the, the, the context of everything is the gospel, the gospel revelation. Sometimes we refer to it as the gospel of Jesus Christ given by the apostle Paul because he really, really lays it out there. See, it, it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we are saved by the gospel, but then it says we must continue in it. It says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes. You know, all over the world, I meet people who say to me, uh, Pastor Peter, can you pray for me? I need the power of God in my life. I look at them, I say, you do? You need the power of God? And then I said, you, you don't have the gospel? Oh, oh, they said, no, no, no. I have the gospel, of course. I believe the gospel, but I need the power of God. I said, isn't that a strange thing? That the Bible says that the gospel is the power, and you claim to have that, and yet you don't have the power. 
seems something is contradictory here. You see, many people believe that we pray the power down, and I have a great respect for prayer. We conduct prayer meetings all the time, and, and I'm doing that also on, on, on social media, praying. But you see, the gospel is not praying the power down. It's preaching the power out. When you speak it, it is powerful. And then Jesus said, he says to his disciples, go and preach the gospel. And they went out, Mark 16, and they preached everywhere. What did they preach? Inference, the gospel. And the Lord was working with them, confirming the gospel with the signs that followed. So people say, I want a miracle ministry. You know, how can I move in the supernatural? How can I have miracles in my life? Uh, one time I was in Singapore preaching at an Assemblies of God Southeast Asia convention, and, and there was 3,000-plus leaders there, and the uh, uh, superintendent who was the head of that operation there, he, he got this idea. He said, uh, Pastor Peter, I'm going to line up all the pastors, and they came from all the surrounding countries there, Malaysia and, 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 and whatever countries they were from, China, Hong Kong, everywhere. And he says, I want you to walk down the line, he says, and I want you to impart the miracle anointing. They wanted me to lay hands on all of them one by one. And I thought, that's a lot of work. What if all 3,000 line up? That'll take a long time. And, but then, of course, I, I, apart from that, I would do the work if, if that's what it took. But I said, you know, miracles don't happen because somebody lays hands on you and say, impartation, miracle anointing. Suddenly, whoo, here you go. You become Superman in the miraculous. No, miracles follow the gospel. So if you know how to present the gospel, yes, dependent on the Holy Spirit, yes, you need to pray. But if you know the gospel, get your doctorate in the gospel because miracles absolutely follow the gospel. Miracles don't follow me or you. Miracles follow the gospel. The gospel means good news, glad tidings. Let's take the good news definition. Good, opposite of bad. News something that has already happened. If something hasn't happened, it's not news. It's a, a prognostication. It's a futuristic hope or idea. But uh, to, in order for it to be news, something must have happened. And the gospel is something good from God that has already happened. And if it's not that, it's not gospel. So sometimes, you know, I've noticed pastors have this uh, habit. I suppose it's, uh, they think it's a spiritual thing that uh, at the beginning of each new year, they announce, well, you know, I've been praying and God has shown me that this year is going to be the year of your breakthrough. And the people get happy and they clap. And then the year goes by. Halfway through, things are not going so good. So the pastor says, well, this is our year of perseverance. And then next year, he says, I've been praying. And the Lord said, this is the year of prophetic fulfillment. And the people, ooh, hallelujah. This coming year is going to be it. And then they get through that year, and, and halfway through is not so good again. So the pastor says, well, this is the year of foundations, foundations. But next year, God said, it's supernatural victory year. And people get, ooh, hallelujah. See, nah. You know, maybe the Lord spoke that or maybe they're just making it up. I don't know, but it's not the gospel. 
because the gospel is not some announcement about a future victory, about a future breakthrough. The gospel is news about something that already happened, something that has already occurred. And you know, when you know something already happened, it's much more steadfast and sure than looking for something that maybe is going to happen one day that you hope and if we pray and hold on and if we just take this serious enough, then it's going to happen. No, no, the gospel is something very solid. It's something that God has already done for the world and that's what we're telling people. God has already made a provision. There's nothing left to do. God has done that. And so, so we say, bring back the gospel. Now, now, this gospel, which is the good news, it is rooted in the new covenant. I want to read now from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's see here. I'm starting with verse 5. You may as well open up your Bibles or your laptop or wherever you're getting it from. I'm going to stay in this. Now, I might meander all over the place a little bit, but this is going to be my main text for this first very abbreviated session of Gospel Revolution Seminar. Uh, and, and it says there, such confidence, verse 4, we have through Christ towards God. Do you have confidence? You feel confident? Well, Paul says we do. So if, so if you're not feeling comforted, maybe you've been tapping into the wrong religion. Tap into this one because it makes you confident through Christ towards God. Verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Did you hear that? That is something to roll around in your mouth like a slowly sucking a candy, you know. Remember you got a candy when you were a kid and you want to see how long it could last. You were just feeling that taste. You roll that around. God has made me sufficient. One translation says adequate. He says, we don't think our adequacy, our sufficiency is our, of ourselves, but it is from God who has made us sufficient. No, no, no. God's talking about you. You are sufficient. How? By being a minister of the new covenant. Do you feel like that? What if I would say to you, 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 you need more blessing? You say, oh, yeah, yeah. well, I thought you had it enough. People said to me, you need more blessing. I said, no, thank you. I have, I have it. I'm sufficient. I'm adequacy. God made me adequate. Do you, do you need more anointing? Oh, I may need to understand what the anointing is more, but actually I already have it. Would you like to have this other preacher's anointing? No, I don't want any other preacher's anointing. I have Christ. He is the anointing. The Bible is all about what you have. See, this is Bible psychology. This is the Apostle Paul psychology constantly reinforcing what you have. Religion, au contraire, always is telling you what you don't have. You don't have the blessing. You don't have the breakthrough. You don't have the power. You don't have this. You don't have that. That's, that's religion. All religions, including Christian. 
But the gospel is you have it. That is the psychology, but it's more than psychology. It is the very foundation of, of, the, of the new covenant teaching that where, where the apostle Paul is the number one spokesperson. You have it. He is opening our eyes to see what we have. So we say, I'm sufficient by, by my sufficiency, my adequacy. It's not of myself. I don't dare to think that anything comes from me or that it's because of my dedication and my anointing and my faithfulness or my obedience. I don't dare to think like that. I don't think anything is of myself. But my sufficiency is from God as a minister of the new covenant. See, this first uh, day in our seminar, I always call it good news for pastors, good news for believers. Some people think, well, if you preach good news, you should preach it to the world. Well, we'll get to that. That'll be in, in other sessions coming up. But for now, I want you to enjoy yourself. Think about it. Think about that hard candy rolling around in your mouth, slowly dissolving, saying, isn't that something? God made me sufficient by being a minister of the new covenant. That's the gospel. There we have the introduction of the word covenant. The covenant is God making everything that he is and has available to you through Jesus Christ. It's not an, a contractual agreement between two equal parties because we could never live up to our part of the agreement any more than Israel couldn't live up and the people in the days of Noah couldn't live up and, and all, the, all those covenants uh, failed because uh, the people who were on the other side of the table, so to speak, they failed. God never failed, but the people failed. So we have a new and better covenant between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, as our perfect representative. And that covenant cannot fail because neither God the Father or God the Son, Jesus Christ, could fail. So, so, so it is an absolutely rock-solid covenant. And by that, we are sufficient. Thank you very much. I have the power of God. I have the blessing. I may not have fully yet realized everything I have, but I have it. I may not fully, fully yet realize all the gold that is in the gold mine in my backyard, but I have it. It's there. And so I am open to my mind and my eyes and my understanding being open to more of what I have, but I have it. It's mine. And so uh, th this idea of a, a, a new covenant here in, in, in the sixth birth, it implies an old and in fact obsolete covenant. And so, uh, you know, how do we go from uh, the, the old covenant, which here I would say is not just the Jewish old covenant, in, in the, because that would be irrelevant to most of us. So when the Bible talks about the old covenant, we can say it represents religion in all its forms, the religious system, uh, how religion works. How do we get out of that into the good news gospel new covenant. Well, the dividing line is the cross. I have my dear associate friend, powerful preacher, Dean Morris here. He's ready with a big cross. He's going to put it up right behind me, and you can leave it there for the rest of the day, Dean, or for the rest of the, of the night, I should say, or whatever time you're watching this. And, and so uh, the cross, when I put the cross there, uh, to me, that represents not just Jesus' death on the cross, but, but his resurrection. 
and, and, and uh, it, it represents everything that is provided by what we call Christ's finished work. It's all included in that. And so, some, so I'm going to say it this way. Let's say that, that this side over here, if the camera can follow me, this side over here, that, that represents the old religious system, the old covenant. And, and this side over here, it'll be in our study today, it will, it will represent the, the new covenant, the gospel. And so how do we get from the old religious system over into the, the gospel? Well, the, the first step is the cross itself. What happened on the cross? Well, Jesus took the world's sins and put them away by one sacrifice of himself at the cross. Jesus took the world's sins, sins past, present, and future, of course. He had to take all the future sins or your sins and my sins wouldn't be included. So he took the sins of the world, becoming the Lamb of God, and put them away. Whatever handwriting of requirement, whatever legalistic uh, documentation could be held up against you, it was nailed to the cross. So the cross. Then you have the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. It was necessary because we are saved by the resurrection. The apostle Paul says, if Christ is not risen, we're still in our sins. So sometimes people say, all we need is the cross. Well, the cross is very important. But without the resurrection, we're still in our sins. Because Jesus lives, we will live also. But then you have another step, and that is what on the church calendar and theologically is called the exaltation. When Jesus went up into heaven, and what did he do when he got to heaven? He sat down. Jesus sat down. That's very important. Hold that thought. I'm coming back to it. And then the fourth thing, from his seated, elevated position, it says, from the right hand of the Father, he poured out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And from that moment, we are in the new covenant because the new covenant is the covenant of the Spirit. You see, so the, Holy, so the new covenant is not totally in full swing until the Holy Spirit is poured out because it's the covenant not of the letter but of the Spirit. And so you have these, these four powerful things in the life of Jesus. But what many don't realize, it's not just Jesus' story. That's why I say, if the vision of Christ only relates to one person who walked here 2,000 years ago, that's wonderful, but it's limited. It's your story. Because then the apostle Paul takes this further and he says that we have, been, the cross, remember the cross? We have been crucified with Christ. So the cross is your story. Not just Jesus' story. Maybe you thought, well, that, that's about Jesus. The cross is all about Jesus. No, according to the uh, gospel of Paul, uh, it, it is your story. I have been crucified with Christ. I died with Christ, he says in Colossians 3 uh, and verse 3. And, 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 and Galatians 2.20, uh, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. So, so when Jesus went to the cross, this is, this is, it sounds mysterious, but it's powerful. And it is the gospel. And it sounds strange. That's why they called Paul a babbler. He says, he doesn't make sense. There are some things about the gospel that's so powerful that it goes beyond human logic. And, and, and so when Christ died, we died with him. 
I can read it to you in a moment from the scripture, Colossians 3. You have died with Christ. And then uh, Paul teaches in Ephesians, resurrection. He says, we have risen with Christ. That's powerful. I mean, we died with Christ and we could say we were buried. That means your past, your shame, your guilt was buried and you are risen to a new life. If any person is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Old things have passed away and everything has become new. But then more than that, Paul says into the Ephesians, we were raised together with Christ and God has made us to sit with Christ in the heavenly places. Have you ever heard such a thing? You say, well, I don't see that. What do you mean I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly places like now, you mean, or some future day? No, no, Paul says it's now. You say, well, now you're losing me, Peter. How could I be seated with Christ? I, who am living here in Toronto or Jakarta or Sydney, Australia or London, England, wherever you are taking part of this. Well, you see, this is the gospel. This is biblical psychology that you see yourself seated with Christ far above all principalities and powers. And that is so important. Uh, you're seated with Christ. Some people say, well, you make such a big deal about that. Oh, don't blame me. Uh, I tell you, the Bible makes a big deal about it. Let, let me just digress for a moment over here to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. You can look at it up in your Bible. You know, the book of Hebrews is one of those books, I tell you, you read it, and the sentences are long with many commas and colons and semicolons. And, and some people say, I don't get it. It's talking about the red heifer and the sprinkling of dust and this and that. I mean, it's a lot to digest. But I say to people, if you don't feel like you have a grasp of the whole book of Hebrews, at least go for the main point. You know, go for the, what we call the Reader's Digest version. Go for the main point. And it says here in Hebrews 8.1, now the main point, in what has been said is this. Did you see that? Hebrews, here's the main point. Everybody, oh, alert. Everybody pay attention. Here comes the main point. Maybe all about the washings of the utensils and the sanctifying of the vessels, you say. But, but forget that. Let's get to the main point. What is it? That we have a high priest who has taken his seat or he is sitting down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. That's the main point. You say, what's the main point? That Jesus is sitting down. You say, how can that be such a main point? He's sitting down. Well, because if you know the religious system of the Hebrews in the tabernacle and in the temple, the high priest could never sit down. And that's typical of all religion. Religion, it, it just never ends. You never get to sit down. You always, you say, people say, well, here, here, here's seven keys to your breakthrough. Do these seven things and you'll get your victory. So people try to do one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And they say, well, I still don't have my victory. And then they go back to the same preacher and says, well, I got a new, my latest book here gives you three more keys. And you, know, you try to do those three more keys. <laughs> and you say, well, I did it. I, I worked it. Well, I still haven't got it. You see, religion is like that. It's like a treadmill. You do a lot of running. You don't get anywhere, though. You don't cover any distance. You're always trying to do it. So, so the gospel is that Christ sat down. And why did Christ sat, sit down? When he left, went back to heaven, why did he sit down? And why is that the main point? Why is this such a big deal? He is seated. 
Why did he sit down? Was he tired? Was he saying, oh, Father, I need to have a seat because I've been down there redeeming the, the world and I'm tired? No, God doesn't get tired. Jesus sat down because the work was done. There was nothing more to do. It was completed. It's for the same reason that God rested on the seventh day in the creation story. It was not because God was exhausted, but because the work was done. It was accomplished, finished. And so now take that to us. Take that to pastors, leaders, sincere believers, people who want to see God do great things, who've been praying earnestly, agonizing, believing God to do something. And maybe this is the thing here. You forgot to, that you're seated with Christ. Sit down. That means I'm sitting down because the work is done. The work is finished. It is finished. So if Jesus sat down, we sit down with him. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. Ephesians, we are seated with Christ. See yourself that way resting in what he has already done. See, see the moment when, well, for example, when you receive Christ as your Savior, maybe you, you, you lifted your hand in a service or you went forward in a service or maybe somebody prayed with you. It's not like Jesus got off of his throne and said, oh, oh look at this. We got uh, somebody down here who wants to get saved. We, we got to move on him now. No, no, Jesus is seated. It's already done. What's Jesus doing today? He's sitting down. He's sitting down. And when you say, where's the devil? Way under his feet, defeated. And so we are seated with Christ. Oh, this is, this is why we can say, now I have no sufficiency in myself, but my sufficiency, I got everything I need because that's what sufficiency is. I, I got all the adequacy is because of what Christ has done. I'm seated with Christ. Oh, this lifts off your heavy burden. This puts a smile on your face. Uh, you say, I've been fighting so hard. See, may, maybe you need to get out of the way, so to speak. You, you've been there doing all that religious effort, trying to take a seat, sit down. Remember, that's when Jesus fed the 5,000, he said, first of all, make the people sit down. I think it's a symbolic picture. He said, make them sit down because they weren't going to sit down by their own accord. Just like many religious people, they just don't want to cease from all their religious activities to try to please as supposedly displease God. But that's a caricature. That's a grotesque misrepresentation. God isn't displeased in the first place. He's been smiling towards you. Maybe you thought he was displeased. He didn't hide his face from you, but your eyes were darkened. You didn't see how awesome God is. But now by the Holy Spirit, your eyes are open and you say, oh, isn't this beautiful? I'm seated with Christ. God is more interested in your victory and your provision and your blessing than you are. Oh, thank you, Lord. He's so, so seated with Christ. So it's, I, I've got to go back. I got carried away there. We are crucified with Christ, risen with Christ, seated with Christ, and we have received the spirit that was upon Christ. And that is why we can say we are sufficient. So, so there's a before and after. I'm not talking about, oh, I used to be a drug addict. Now I'm addicted to religion. That's not before and after. But there's a before the cross, before the cross and after the cross. And it changes everything. It changes everything. You see, before the cross, 
before Jesus Christ uh, put away the world's sins, rose again, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Before that, everything that, that the people of Israel did, that they were doing things in order for God to bless them. That was the key word, in order to. So we pray in order that God might bless us. We fast in order that God might bless us. We worship in order that God may open heaven. We love in order that God will love us back. We try to please God so that God will be sufficiently satisfied and bless us. But in the new covenant over here on the gospel side of this little illustration, we don't pray to get blessed. We pray because we are blessed. Well, you say, well, Peter, I don't feel blessed. Well, I'm not here to preach about teach what you feel because you already knew what you feel before you tuned in, so I don't need to do that. I'm here to talk about reality. Ephesians 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Did you hear that? Has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. So you, got, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, I need to get blessed, but I believe Ephesians 1, 3 at the same time. Either you believe Ephesians 1, 3 that says that God has already done it. God has already blessed you with every blessing. You may not see it. You may not have experienced it. Your eyes may be darkened that you don't know what those blessings are. But in fact, the blessing has been provided. To use the illustration again, the gold mine is in your backyard. You may not know how much gold is in it, but it's there. God has done it for you. He, he has already, so, so after we realize what Jesus has done, we pray, maybe fast, worship, not in order for God to bless, but because of his blessing, because of. So, so before the cross, we pray that God will give us a breakthrough. And after the cross, we pray because Jesus Christ broke through on our behalf. This applies to so many areas of life, you know. For example, talk about forgiveness. You know, the people before they realized what Jesus' cross had accomplished, they were saying, oh, God, help me to forgive, help me to forgive, help me to forgive. But the equation changes after the cross. And, of course, we live after the cross. In Colossians and Ephesians, both epistles, Paul talks about this. He says, love one another, be tenderhearted, forgive one another. As God in Christ has forgiven you. Notice there, past tense. He has forgiven. Has, it's done. It's a done deal. You have been forgiven. And so, you see, it's, it's a whole new life when we try to forgive others with, on the basis of, well, look at how much God has already forgiven me. And see, he has forgiven me so much, it becomes natural to forgive others. Same with love. People say, well, I need to love people. I need more love. We need more love. We need to love more. How, how, how is God going to show his love to us if we don't love first? That's a religious thinking. The new covenant thinking by which we are sufficient is that, uh, that uh, we love because he first loved us. Who started the loving? He did. God loved first. God forgave first. God released first. 
It's not like if you move, God will move. I heard a preacher preach about that. It was a nice sermon. He had it well packaged, but it was wrong. You know, some sermons can be really well packaged. They're really fun, good illustrations and kind of a alliteration of words and letters and, and people laugh a lot, but it can still be just nothing but a religious tradition and, and, and deception. He was saying, if you move, God will move. If you move, well, you know, the whole story of the gospel is God moved before you. <laughs> so if you make a move to love God, he beat you to it. He loved you first. If you make a move to forgive others, God beat you to it. He forgave you first. <laughs> you see? So if you kind of make a move, I'm going to pray and ask God to bless me. Well, you know what? He beat you to it. He already released the blessing before you got a chance to, 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 to kind of pray for it and demand it or however you do it. And so prayer is so beautiful because prayer is receiving and taking a hold of that which God has already provided for us. I, I wish I could just spend so much time on this. I was hoping to get through the whole chapter of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. I don't know if there's any hope. I'm the first verse I've covered so far. And so uh, we are sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Now, I put the cross right here, and you could, if you're taking notes, take a note paper and put a little cross right in the center of the paper up top, and we can look at before and after. We, let, let's read. Let's just try to cover some of this here in 2 Corinthians, verse 5. Uh, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. And here it comes. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the letter that kills is on this side of the line. It belongs to the old religious system. The letter that kills. Do, 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 do this. And you try to do it, but you can never quite live up to it. But the new covenant, the gospel, is of the Spirit that gives life. The letter kills, it kills you to be told, you must do this, you must do this. And then you fail a little bit, and then you're even tempted to cover it up, to pretend that you didn't fail, even though you know that you failed, hoping that nobody else noticed. It kills you, takes away your joy. But the Spirit, this new covenant gospel, it gives you life. Let's read a little bit more here. I'm doing pretty good now. Covered another verse, verse here. Then it says, verse 7, But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face which was fading away. So this is very interesting. It says here, ministry of death. Which side of the cross do you think that goes on? Well, that's, that's on the religion side, ministry of death. Imagine that there's such a ministry of death. Well, it said the letter kills. You know, you can preach death to people. You know how you do that? By reminding them of all their faults. Many preachers do that. Sad to say, they spend every Sunday morning reminding the people of what's wrong with them. You're not righteous enough. You don't pray enough. You don't read your Bible enough. You don't love enough. You don't give enough. And they think, they may be well-intentioned, they think, if I just keep browbeating these points, eventually 
it'll sink in and they'll make a big change and start doing things better. But in fact, the opposite is true. The more you remind people how they are not like they should be, the more they will be like they're not should be. You'll remind, after a while, even the people who are kind of maybe had some revelation of Jesus, you keep browbeating them and telling them, oh, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to, you haven't done enough of this. Eventually, they're going to say, I may as well give up too. It seems like everybody around me is not uh, managing to get through this. But you see, instead, the ministry of life, that's the ministry of the gospel. It, it, it is a spirit that gives life. It, you tell people, who they really are. That's what I'm doing today. I'm telling you, you are sufficient. You're adequate. You're blessed. You've been forgiven. Some would say, oh, he's watering down the gospel. Oh, he's just trying to give a positive message. We need to get back, get back to the real Bible. And, you know, we need to tell people off more. Tell them like it is. No, no, I'm not watering anything down. I am sharing the only thing that can lift you. The only thing that can give you the power to rise above that because you reign in life. Romans 5, 17. How do you reign in life? By being reminded of everything that's wrong with you? No, you reign in life by the gift of righteousness and the abundance of grace, unmerited favor from God. That's how you overcome. So if you, if you say, well, I'm, I'm kind of not quite up there. You know, I have made some mistakes. I fell, I fell and I did something wrong. What do you need then? You don't need a spanking. You don't need a beating to straighten you out. You, you need abundance of grace. You need the, to realize righteousness is a gift because that's how you reign in life. And so we say to pastors and I say to believers, whoever is watching, get out of the ministry of death and get into the ministry of life. You see, we have so much faith in our own words. Pastors have too much faith in their own little rebukes and, and I told the people like this, I told them like this, I told them like it is. And sometimes when I talk like this, people say, well, Pastor Peter, you know, didn't Jesus say that the truth will set you free? You know, shouldn't we, if we see that the people are not living godly like they should, shouldn't we tell them? Shouldn't we tell them the truth about how awful they are? Well, I said, if you think that the truth about people's sin sets them free, I said, why don't you start? Why don't you get up in front of your church and tell everybody all your sins, all your temptations, lust, envy, greed, gossiping. Why don't you go and tell everybody? I said, no, no, no. I didn't mean like I should do it. I meant like other people need to acknowledge their sin. Well, if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. So if, if, if you think everybody else should do it, why don't you do it yourself? Because at the heart, we don't even think that's going to change us. So when the Bible says, and when Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall shut you free, the same Jesus in the same book in the Bible also said, I am the truth. Capital T. I am the truth. So what sets you free, and oh yes, we want people to be set free. We want people to enjoy the gospel. But what sets you free is not the truth of your failure because you already knew those. You don't need to be reminded. What sets you free is the truth of Jesus Christ and what he has done. Oh, thank God for it. I'm getting so blessed just reading this. He says here, I'm, I'm still in verse 7. I was supposed to get to verse 18. It's not going to happen, but there's always next, next, next time. If the ministry of death in letters engraved on stone, so, so this is referring now to the commandments. 
Now, the commandments were true and just and holy and righteous. But that which was engraved on stones, look at what it says there. That's the ministry of death. But it had glory. I'll get to that in a moment. So let, let's just say, first of all, are we against the Ten Commandments? Not at all. We love the Ten Commandments for the purpose for which they were given. They were not given to make you holy. If the Ten Commandments could make you righteous and holy, there was no need for Jesus Christ to come because we already had the Savior, which would have been the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments proved for 1,400 years as righteous and holy and pure as they are. I'm quoting Romans 7 there. It proved that they couldn't make anybody else holy and righteous. And so this is why uh, Paul is there in, in Romans 7 talking about it's like being married to somebody who never helps you. You're in a miserable marriage. He's using that as an illustration. And he says somebody has to die because if, so, if somebody dies, if, if your spouse dies, you can marry another. But he's not saying that you should wish for anybody to die. He's saying there, he's talking about the religious system called the law. He says, he says I, was, I wanted to do right, but I couldn't do right. And, and I wanted to stay away from wrong, but I still did wrong. I was miserable. What I wanted to do, I didn't do. And what I didn't want to do, I found myself doing. And maybe that's you. You've been repenting over and over again for the same thing and nothing ever changes. Because there's a ministry of death that kills people. And so then Paul says, well, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What's the gift? He says, oh, somebody died. He says, when Jesus went to the cross, not only did Jesus die, but I died, and the law died, and the religious system died, and every handwriting of requirements was nailed to the cross. The whole system of religion died. And he says, now I am risen to a new husband. His name is Jesus Christ. I'm betrothed to Jesus Christ. And the difference between the law and Jesus is this. Both are holy, righteous, and pure. You know, the law is holy and just and pure. Jesus is holy, just, and pure. So what's the difference? The law won't help you. Won't do a thing for you. You see, imagine if you were married to a perfect person who never did a thing to help you. Let's say, I speak it from the woman's point of view. If you're married to a perfect husband, and every morning when you wake up, he says, why aren't you out of bed yet? I expected my breakfast by now. And you say, oh, yes, yes, oh, Oh, poor me. I'm so poor. I couldn't live up to your expectations. Oh, I meant to get up earlier, but I didn't do it. Oh, I repent. I repent. And then he says, oh, your hair isn't combed. It's a mess. Oh, I'm so sorry. I should have, I should have fixed myself up. Oh, yes, master. Oh, yes, Lord. Uh, and oh, look at that. Look at that painting over there. It's hanging crooked. You should have straightened. Oh, I, I'm so, oh I see some dust on the floor. Oh, 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 I'm so sorry. How would you like to be married to someone who is so perfect but never helps you? It will be a hellish marriage. And that's the religious marriage a lot of people live in. They're under the ministry of death. They're under the letter that kills them. But the Spirit gives life. And so Paul says, I'm risen to be married to a new, new husband, so to speak. He's saying, I'm married betrothed to Jesus Christ, who's holy, pure, and just, but he helps me. He lives through me. 
He sees through me. He touches through me. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life I now live. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, that's the ministry of life. And he says, then Paul says here, he says that that old covenant life, that religious life had a certain glory, had a certain glory, but it faded away. You know, religion has a certain glory. I say like this, if you've been, say, addicted to something, say you've been a, a drug addict or something, and, and then you come to the Lord and they give you many prescriptions. You must do this and you must get up at seven every morning, read one chapter in the Bible, and then you must come to morning devotions and then you must have lunch at this time, lights out at 10 p.m. and you read the Bible, no television. And you say, oh, it's so wonderful. I'm free from drugs. But, but you're kind of under that imprisonment. That's glorious. That's good. It's good. You're free from meth or cocaine or whatever you were addicted to. But you know what's even greater is without those rules, without anybody saying you must do this or you must do that, if you can live in society, you could sit opposite to someone who has taken the very same drugs that you were addicted to and you don't even want them. Now, that's greater. That's greater glory. That's, that, then you're free. If you were addicted, maybe enslaved by alcohol and you couldn't control yourself and, 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 and somebody's watching you all the time, just all the time keeping an eye on you, that, that's glorious. That's glorious. That's nice. I'm glad you, you, don't, you, know, you don't ruin yourself. You don't drive around drunk in your car anymore, threatening people's lives. But you know what's even greater is if you, by the power inside of you, can say no. That's the gospel, you see. That's the gospel. That, that's where God is taking you. And so the, the Spirit gives life. Oh, and it says here that in verse 8, how will the ministry of the Spirit uh, fail to be even more filled with glory? That's what he's saying. That it, it's more glorious because religion and its glory, it fades away. And, and we'll talk about Moses, but I'm, my time is done. I can't believe. I thought I'd get through the whole chapter but uh, we'll have to pick it up later. But the glory of this uh, gospel, this new covenant, is that it doesn't fade away. You go from glory to glory to glory. Well, and that's about all I can give you today. Lift your hand at home right now. Father, I thank you. I thank you for everybody watching. I thank you for this life of the Spirit. I thank you that our eyes are beginning to be open to uh, the, the inheritance and the riches of our inheritance and how awesome it is what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. I thank you that the spiritual darkness is gone. And I thank you that we see more fully and we comprehend with all the saints the width and the length and the height and the depth and we know the love of Christ that transcends beyond any intellectual knowledge. Amen and amen.